EMSradio.com. EMS information for the next generation. The EMS Garage is a production of EMSradio.com. You can find us on Facebook. Just search EMS Garage. You can find us on Twitter at EMS Garage. Email us, emsgarage at gmail.com. Or call us, 303-720-6001. The EMS Every other week, uh, just due to life and busyness, and uh, we'll get back on the weekly track here soon. I've got some old episodes I've got to publish out, and I'll get those to you guys soon. I'm Chris Montero, the Geeky Medic, and you can find me on all of those websites that you know and love for social media. I am joined today by an esteemed panel, as always, and we're going to talk about some fun issues in EMS. We're going to talk about uh, how to fix the broken EMS system. We're going to talk about excited delirium up in New York. And perhaps we'll have time to get to a an ambulance response and a daughter's death down in Houston. So joining me first is Mr. Tim Noonan. How are you, sir? Pretty good. How are you? Good. You've dug out from your from your snowpocalypse back there. I didn't do any digging this time. Okay. Uh, it all melted pretty quickly uh, the next day, and I was busy enough that day that uh, I was just driving around and never got to play with the shovel. Right on. Well, welcome. Thank you. Also Thanks joining for us. Having me. Also joining us, Miss Sam Bradley from the really awesome. What is that medic doctor show? I can't think of that name of that show now. No. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't know. All I know is I'm in California and it's in the 60s, but it's much warmer than uh, where you guys are. So yeah, I might. I'll be lucky to hit 38 today. Oh, mm-hmm. ouch. Loving it, loving it. It's no, it's only fall. I'm like, come on, seriously? All right, anyway. Well, thanks for joining me. i, I got to stop talking about the weather because that's what uh, Scott Keir says I always do, so i got to stop talking about it. But it's so much fun. That's a way to break the ice or something. I don't know. Uh, finally joining us this week, very first time on the podcast, Mr. Art Sia. How are you, sir? Oh, good morning. And, yes, I'm also in California, but it is 36 degrees here Ooh. currently, so... Uh, if we're going to talk about whether we are really disparate at the moment. <laughs> right on. Art, tell us who you are, what you do, where you're from, and uh, you know some of your background in EMS. Sure. I've um, been a paramedic licensed for uh, 28 years now. Um, started originally back in the New York, Boston area and moved out to California where it is generally nicer weather and it makes it easier to work outside uh, back in 1990. Uh, I currently um, um, teach as a faculty member of the Public Safety Training Center at Santa Rosa Junior College, the Emergency Medical Care Program, uh, which is a really long way of saying that I teach EMT and paramedic programs. Um, I've spent the last 15 years uh, uh, in a variety of different leadership positions, 
uh, and just been totally fortunate that I've been able to make a career uh, out of EMS uh, and still enjoy going to work every day. Right on. Well, you know, I uh, I looked you up after the death of Steve Jobs, and you wrote this really awesome article, and it was literally at the end of the podcast. I found your I think your article was published the same day we were doing our podcast, and I'm like, man, this guy, I like him. He's kind of geeky. He kind of gets it. Kind of likes, he likes Steve Jobs, so that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, how can you go wrong? <laughs> it was good. So I invited him on, and then he wrote a great article this week that we're going to talk about. So uh, let's let's set up the story for how we fix a broken EMS system and where you came up with this idea and maybe talk a little bit about Pinellas County. And then I think then it probably is more of a system-wide issue, but I, I, like, the, I like the way it sets up everything. Okay, um, and thanks, and thank you for having me on the show, by the way. I appreciate it greatly. The, uh, having longevity in the business, um, I think, does allow you to gain the long view of how uh, things evolve and where things might go. And I've been watching EMS systems generically evolve over the last 15 years with, with some significant interest because there are just so many disparate ways that EMS is delivered in the United States uh, and at this point, I don't know if there's any one best way of making it happen, but because there isn't one, there's lots of different ways to make it happen of which there are some great benefits and some great um, issues associated with each one. So uh, I've taken an interest in Pinellas County simply as an outsider looking in, uh, mostly because the it's been well reported and it's been consistently reported for at least a year uh, through the regular media channels. And um, I think that that's a system that's very emblematic of what's happening across many systems in the United States. Um, there's uh, not enough money to support the system. Uh, there's a demand to maintain services while reducing cost. And it always reminds me of the whole concept of having systems that are good, fast, and cheap. And you need to pick two out of three. And that's, uh, I haven't yet, in my travels at least, found any system that can accomplish all three of those attributes, what we would consider to be um, an excellent EMS system. Uh, and, uh, and in Pinellas, where you have a setup between multiple governmental agencies uh, trying to vie for the same service, I think that there are certain issues that are not being addressed. They're using the current um, paradigm of, of how EMS is. And it, here's an opportunity for a, a large system to really be creative and look at what is EMS, what should be provided given the current data and the current evidence involved with how pre-hospital care affects outcomes and um, implement a system that uh, could be far uh, better than anything that's out there right now. Well, shouldn't we change the paradigm in new in this new economy and everything? Shouldn't we change it to bad, slow, and expensive? You can pick one. I mean, that way you would at least then you're at least setting everybody up to understand that it it, it you get one of the three. I mean, the opposite's true, obviously, but but I think I mean you're right because some of the things that you bring up in the article that. I've always kind of stuck to that really the public, the only thing the public cares about when they call 911 most of the time is that somebody responds to their emergency, does it quickly, professionally, and takes care of their problem and their issue and delivers them to the proper place if they need. Um, that 
beyond that, the public doesn't really understand what we do. And then you have all those back infighting of politicians and um, various entities that feel like they should be involved in it, whether it's the... Um, whether it's the union, whether it's the fire department, whether it's the private ambulance service, whatever the case may be. And doggone it, maybe someday we'll just all get along. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think that, the, I mean, the, the, I remember a conversation with the uh, Department of Transportation, the EMS section, this was a long time ago, where apparently there was a study that was done back in the 90s that looked at really what the public perception was about what they wanted out of their EMS system. And uh, it, it, you're, you're sort of hitting the nail on the head. Uh, the, the typical person doesn't think about EMS. They just don't. They, as much as they don't really think about their fire department or their, or their police department until they really need them. And when they need them, they really want someone to come very quickly because they are having an emergency. They want to be respected and treated respectfully, and they expect a transport. Uh, really, in the uh, in the grand scheme of things, uh, the general public doesn't know how to measure competency, uh, nor should they. Uh, you know, we're we're in a specialized field. It's hard to understand if you don't have the training what a competent EMS provider is. They don't understand the level of care that's being provided. ALS or PLS, again, specialized information that most folks don't know about and don't care about. Uh, they they just want to know that they're going to be taken care of with some compassion and respect. Um, so if so, it's hard to use those metrics as a way of designing a system to a certain extent. It does depend upon then those of us, you know, the, the the smart folks in our field who have the understanding and the knowledge of what really is, uh, at least given the current conditions, what is technically best for a system and to think about what that might mean, even if it massively changes a paradigm uh, in, in terms of what we think is good care or high-quality care that's delivered in the field. Well, and, and Sam was talking a little bit about this before the show, and without outing too much information, new service moves into town and says, we're going to buy all this great equipment and and we're going to do all these great things and we're going to have the most state-of-the-art things. And then they come in and find out how expensive it is and something's got to give. Either it's the pay to the pay to the people that you um, employ, it's the service you provide, it's the ambulance itself that suffers So, as far as maintenance and all those type of things. And, man, it and it's not cheap. And I think that's the other piece of it. People have to understand that providing health care in a, an emergency setting where we're basically the 7-Eleven of health care, we have got to, um, it's hard for us to make that point sometimes that we have to be open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We have to keep everything in stock on the shelves. And at any time, anyone can walk in the door, take everything off of our shelves and not pay us for it. Whoa. Hello. So, um, so that, that kind of, Model, I think people understand, and maybe if we started telling our story a little bit more, people would understand that it, it, it can't be free, and it's not free. And even when we charge for ambulance rides, that's not going to cover the cost of readiness. But we also have a problem with convincing people that faster is better instead of better is better. And we 
end up with so much focus on response times rather than get somebody there initially to start doing something. But the paramedics need to be people who know what they're doing, people who provide good care. And we don't even have medical directors who understand what good EMS care is. So how do we expect the public to know? Sam, you had some stuff to say about that earlier. What What's your opinion on just all things surrounding this topic? And, and- this is... Yeah, this is such a huge subject, and obviously there's no one clear answer to it. You know, we've got the private versus fire issue. Um, and for me, it's strange because I spent so much of my career in private ambulance, and now I'm more on the fire side, and it's too big a question. Um, now, let me let me think on this for a minute because I... I want to say something intelligent here, but I, I can't, there's just no, there's no real answer. It's just every system has its own inherent issues. Every, every community has its different composite of fire and EMS. And it, you know, there's just no one real good answer, but you know, I agree with art. There needs to be a paradigm change and you know, maybe, and this gets into a whole different subject, but you know, what you guys are doing, in fact, uh, the interview that I referred to earlier with a, a new medical director, he, he talks more about where you guys are at, Chris, in terms of community paramedicine and just other things that need to happen in a system besides just how the ambulance responds or whether it's fire or it's EMS. There's just so much more out there that needs to be considered in a new paradigm, I think. Well, and true, and I, and I, and I guess I struggle sometimes, too, with making people understand that we really are healthcare. And since we're part of healthcare, that we, we don't need to be as expensive as traditional healthcare, but we need to get some recognition that we're a part of that overall chain. Because I, th- I think we've been the redheaded stepchild of many systems over the years, whether it be public safety or healthcare or public health or whatever. I mean, we, nobody wants to claim us. So we have got to find our own niche and we've got to make it. And, you know, I, I know I often harp on this, but we've got to kind of look at ourselves a lot like nursing did in the forties and fifties. It, they, you know, up until then the physicians were afraid of them and they didn't want them to do anything. And, and they were just basically the, the right shoulder of the physician doing exactly what they were told kind of stuff. And, and now look at nursing and look at all the power and and some of the educational um, things they've done or some of the things in education they've done for themselves and moving their profession forward. And and I'm not saying all that's good. I'm not saying all that's bad. I'm just saying that we could emulate that quite well in our very young industry. Yeah. Uh, we, I think that we don't. And I think, again, both of you are hitting a lot of things that are square in the head that I've seen and, and think is what's happening based on different discussions over the years. We don't, uh, you know, we as an industry, and I, and I specifically choose the word industry because I'm not sure if we're a profession yet. Um, the, and I actually fear that by the time I retire, uh, that we're still not going to be a profession because we just are not embracing certain attributes that say that we're willing to look at things critically and we, we look at things very carefully and that we're willing to give up pre-existing ideas, you know, the concept of, 
you know, hundreds of years of tradition unimpeded by progress. It's, it's happening in EMS as a rule. Like we have some, some very good systems out there, uh, that have bucked that trend. But as a rule, we seem to be stuck in the same concept that sort of keeps us in the past just because it's, it's what we know best. It's what we've always done. And, uh, you know, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what the research shows or the studies show. Uh, that uh, that it's still the thing that we should be doing. So we're very self-propagating. But you know the concept that uh, Tim brings up about time, you know, time responses. That's a. I mean, for the most part, most of us understand that that's pretty much debunked. It's, it's unless it's a very specialized set of uh, subset of calls. The time response is totally um, not necessary for outcomes of the patient, other than the pre-described expectations we've given them over the last 40 years about how quick an ambulance should come. And then where we don't um, really push for education and we don't push for the higher post-secondary education where it's formal training, formal theory, um, learning how to think critically and make rational decisions, that keeps us from moving into areas as an, as an industry about community medicine and, and um, out of hospital care versus uh, pre-hospital care. Uh, those type of issues will keep us from moving forward. And again, sort of to sort of steer it back to where we've been uh, with Pinellas County, the, I think that you see a lot of those very broad issues. Uh, being encapsulated in the day-to-day political maneuvering that's happening in that area uh, where no one's really talking about, you know, what's the value of uh, ALS first response? What's the value of having a paramedic in every pot? Uh, you know, is it that, the you know, should we be focused primarily in the areas that we can really affect patient outcomes on time dependency like shortness of breath, uh, you know, CHF patients and uh, you know, those, that particular special subset, uh, and, and, and change things in a way so that you can have a more streamlined system or a less expensive system that actually has better outcomes. Um, it's not, it, you know, it, those, those are not being discussed. Uh, and, and I think again, we, we tend to stick our heads deep in the proverbial sand. Uh, to avoid trying to touch those questions in a very broad way. Well, and it's interesting you should bring the the idea of time up and and responsive responsiveness. I don't even know if that's a word. Responsiveness, Lee, whatever of time. But but I think uh, the 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 case recently in Houston where. Uh, an, am- uh, an ambulance wasn't dispatched till the, or seemingly wasn't dispatched till a fire truck arrived on scene. Um, maybe highlights the case of what the perception of the public is versus the reality of the situation. And it's unfortunate the doctor got backed over by one of the family members. Um, the fire truck was on scene within four four minutes and fifteen seconds, and. It's unclear when the ambulance got toned, and apparently they've changed their dispatch policy in August to say that fire trucks go first, then ambulance gets get toned if they deem it to be a life-threatening emergency. Um, and then the ambulance arrived four and a half minutes later. So really total time was eight and a half minutes, but the perception was is that the fire truck was there for an awful long time before the ambulance got there. You know, I, I always tell everybody eight minutes to somebody that's in a crisis seems like an eternity. 
and every minute thereafter is more of an eternity. So, uh, you know, gosh, these guys were even these guys were under the eight minutes and fifty nine second, you know, industry standard that we've applied, and yet people are complaining and wanting change. You you can't put an ambulance on every corner. I'm sorry, and I I guess one of the telling quotes for me is that the um, the parents say. My wish is that the system has changed in time to save the next child who needs it. And, you know, I'm just like, I just sit here and I'm in awe that we change systems for one life, for one thing. And instead of looking at it from that cost-benefit analysis, and, and unfortunately, bad things happen to good people all the time. So we've got to, and, and emergencies happen every day. And I'm not being crass, I'm not being sarcastic, but I think that we have to... We have to maintain this idea of what what the perception is of service, like like Art said. But then, what's what what uh, so the perception of service, and then what can be handled with with what we've got? Basically, we can't. You know, if you want a gold plated ambulance system, you know, you can pay for it, but it's going to be expensive. You know, I in our system, it's about six hundred thousand dollars to put an ambulance on the street to pay for the staffing and the overtime, you know, everything that goes along with that. So think about your own city and think about how big that system could be if you had to put that much, um, that many dollars behind every ambulance that was out there. And I don't think people understand what the expense is. And man, it, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I, we've got to, we have to come up with a better metric for service than time. And I don't know that we'll ever, I don't know what that is because there's got to be a lot we smarter We need to people. throw out time. Well, yeah, but. Completely. But, but again, then you get articles like this that say, well, I Doesn't hope it matter. changes. We need to get out there and tell people that this is a political issue. They're appealing to emotions. They don't know what they're talking about. The woman will tell you herself, she's not a medical expert. She doesn't know what's what. They're not suing. What she's trying to do is raise awareness of this. And sounds to me like she's willing to learn what would be the best thing for her daughter. Now, they flew the kid. That child probably wouldn't have survived anyway, you know, if there was that much trauma. I agree. Eight minutes isn't going to make that big a difference. They flew the kid from the scene uh, with children. Uh, Sometimes we will fly them when they don't have pulses, even though uh, an intelligent person knows that it's not going to make any difference unless the helicopter crashes and also kills the crew. But uh, you're not going to make anything better by putting a dead person in a helicopter. The magic rotor on top doesn't resuscitate people. But it makes people feel that more is being done. And maybe they did that because the family was so upset about uh, the way they perceived the response. Did the ambulance come from the same place that the fire truck came from? It didn't say. Does it matter? We don't know. Well, if it came from the same place, it might indicate that the ambulance was not dispatched at the same time. Uh, from what I read in the article, the policy is supposed to not change dispatch on calls that are uh, categorized as critical. So the ambulance should be dispatched right away on anything that is considered to be a critical call. How do you not categorize, I drove over my daughter as a critical call? Completely um, agree. I think that's where the problem is. Maybe the dispatcher 
was very emotional about it. You know, you're talking to the mother of somebody who drove, or you're talking to somebody who drove over their own child. I wouldn't be making sense on the phone if I did the same thing. Um, you know, maybe they made a mistake in dispatching. There are a lot of possibilities. Um, we need to find ways to improve communication in those situations, not, um, you know, look for people to blame. And uh, that's one of the things that both parents or I think both parents have said about this. They're not looking to blame people. They're trying to improve the way things are done. And, you know, they assume that faster is better. Well, you can make everybody a paramedic and you will have instant response times. The quality of care will suffer. How much suffering are we willing to put up with in order to get everybody a paramedic? And I'm not commenting on whether we change what we call everybody in EMS to paramedic, but somebody who does ALS-type skills. If we want to have high-quality care be available, um, we need to cut back on the number of people who are providing it because you don't keep your skills up to the right level uh, to be categorized as excellent at it, to be able to provide excellent care if you're never seeing or rarely seeing unstable patients and rarely treating unstable patients. If you've got half a dozen paramedics showing up at a call, only one person is really doing stuff on that call, and you've got five people standing around uh, trying to figure out what to do so they don't look stupid. Well, then you've got the safety issues of code three response, which is a whole different subject, but it does factor in here. You got, mm-hmm. you know, two or three units going code three, like you said, for one person to actually do the work and a few to back them up and set up an IV. So that, that does factor into it, unfortunately. And you've got a bunch of people driving in big trucks when they could just as easily arrive in small trucks with less costs and less right. wear and tear for 90% of the responses. Yeah, putting a fire engine out of service for a minor medical when they could be doing something like putting out a fire. <laughs> oh, we don't want to go there, do we? <laughs> well, we won't go there now, but it does factor in. It's only a one-hour show. I don't think we have yeah. time. <laughs> well, that subject another day. But on the, you know, I work with a dispatch center also, and I what I do is listen to dispatch calls a lot. And, you know, we have a tiered system where they decide, okay, engine and ambulance, usually it is an ambulance, code two or code three. You know, those are the kind of decisions they make. But what bothers me about this is the idea that the first responders get there, then make a decision on whether an ambulance is necessary. And though I can see the efficacy of that, the problem is you don't always get good, you know, the RP that calls into the dispatch center doesn't always give good information. So it's a crapshoot sometimes on the dispatcher having to try and decide what apparatus to send. And sometimes it works, and sometimes, you know, you miss the mark on it. Uh, it's not a perfect science. The alternative isn't perfect either. True. 
you know, there's no way that we're going to have a perfect system. It's a matter of deciding what kind of imperfections we are comfortable with, how we can minimize the harm from these imperfections, and, you know, how to learn ways to improve it as we go along. Because whatever we come up with is not going to be what we keep. We'll keep changing things. So we have to figure out a way to assess it, to evaluate it as we go along and keep improving things. Well, and maybe the cutting edges, you know, when we're talking about how do we fix EMS, maybe it's changing the whole face of EMS. Maybe it's changing the whole role of a paramedic. And I keep going back to what Chris and his people are doing and, and other folks in terms of community paramedicine. Maybe that's what where we need to go. Maybe it's the whole role of looking more at preventative medicine than just, you know, sending everybody out code three on every emergency, which is where we've, that's what it's all been about. How fast do we get there and who gets there and the composite of people that get there? Maybe it's about changing how we do medicine. And, and of course, we've all talked about raising the level of professionality. Of course, that needs to go in there, too, and paying people appropriate wages. But maybe the whole, you know, art, like Art says, the whole paradigm needs to change on what paramedicine is. Absolutely. So, Art, you've been quiet in this conversation. What are your what are your thoughts and feelings on the on the thing from Houston and just that in general? Right. Well, I was um, sort of trying to see if there was any other information while um, we were talking, and, and and it's probably way still early in the investigation. It will be interesting to see when those dispatches occurred to find out whether it was a simultaneous dispatch. I mean, an eight minute response by the ambulance doesn't seem like it's out of the ordinary, but. Um, there had been there. There was a study that was done here in San Francisco some time ago, where um, it was really clear that the public, when you're hit with all that adrenaline, you can't manage it. You, time really does, in fact, slow down. And we had, uh, you know, we had looked at time responses of vehicles, and they would arrive within the average of four to eight minutes. And um, the public, when asked. When they were queried, they would respond that it took the ambulance anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour to arrive. Uh, And, uh, you know, so clearly the the public just, uh, you know, it's hard to measure time when you're under a whole lot of stress, which is what this family was managing. So, again, it would be sort of interesting to see. I know that Houston really does rely on a tiered system where they they have both basic life support and advanced life support ambulances in that area. And um, they also are dealing with a very large scandal of a lot of their uh, ambulance transport providers, the private providers, um, being called on the carpet for uh, Medicare fraud. Uh, so I think that there's, a, again, sort of a lot of um, noise down in the Houston area right now about um, how their EMS systems are being run. Uh, and, and ergo, this, this story appears as well. So. A lot of uh, a lot of interesting things that go on in particular areas. You know, one thing that comes to mind. You know, we're, we talk most, mostly about existing systems, which have primary BLS and paramedic. Uh, one thing that's been under discussion out here is what about the new? You know, and again, this throw, kind of throws it in a whole different subject, but. Again, looking at a new paradigm, what about advanced EMT? Now we're also going to have advanced paramedic. Where does all that fit into the future of EMS? And, you know, the idea out here, especially when I work in a somewhat rural 
area, it certainly used to be, was our medical director decided that advanced EMT would actually be the perfect first responder level uh, because they could do some of those uh, rather necessary emergent ALS skills in the very first few minutes of a call that are truly necessary, lessening the need for a paramedic to be there in those first few minutes. That's just something else we might see in the future. There's other options out there. Well, I think it's a, it is an interesting, um, you know, concept of advanced DM. The advanced EMT is basically just that. It's a, it's a, a trained emergency medical technician that ends up, um, picking up with some additional, uh, what, what I think at this point at least we would support as effective advanced life support care, uh, you know, delivering epinephrine to a, to a, um, you know, anaphylactic patient. Uh, that type of intervention that requires um, relatively little training uh, and some and good quality improvement processes to make sure that it works. And uh, yeah, I've heard the same discussions out here where it's really kind of geared toward the rural regions, but um, I'm, I'm willing to throw it out there to say that perhaps that's really where the effort of the um, first responder ALS provider really is, uh, where you're able to deliver the right level of care at, that is that is time dependent in a system that allows you to deliver that person there in a short period of time. Um, you know, so the you know I think that again this is one of those things of looking at paradigms to go is that really the best use of resources uh, to make that happen? Of course, the reality of politics uh, and um, you know, all of the issues surrounding that are going to make it difficult um, to push forward the, the, the perfect system. Uh, just so people have a lot at stake um, uh, in any of the any of those type of decisions they have to make. Well, and I completely agree that it's it's going to take time, you know, and I'm sitting here thinking about how the rest of healthcare does things. And we, we have, we have time, you know, we have the 90 minute door to balloon or the 90 minute call to balloon or 90 minute, you know, incident to balloon, whatever, um, that we're striving for. But man, those are long standards and those are, you know, it's not, it's not minutes and seconds like like we've put upon ourselves from you know years ago, and but trying to shift that paradigm is going to be hard. And I, you know, I, well, I agree with you, Sam, that some of the things we're doing is going to help. It's it's got to be a little more pervasive than just little old me sitting here trying to do some changes. And you know, it's got to be we're talking industry wide. And how many people out there? are well aware. I can tell you that there are many states and many organizations around the United States looking into what we're doing, but it comes down to the, at the end of the day, can they afford it? Can they, you know, can they afford to make this change and do it kind of blindly, if you will? We're, we're going into it not knowing what the outcome's going to be. You know, we took a big step to say, I think I see the future for this, but I don't know. I mean, I could be completely wrong and they could ride me out of town on a rail tomorrow because, you know, it, while it sounds all well and good, until we can actually pay for it, it's going to be, uh, I don't know, interesting to see. So, uh, one of the th- one of the things I've uh, been noticing in the chat is that you know Bill Gates and the difference between Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. You know, Bill 
is we need a we need a Steve Jobs for our industry. We need a we need a tyrant innovator kind of you know one Dr. of the Dr. Pledge. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know if he's a tyrant, but he's definitely an innovator. <laughs> he's probably seen as a tyrant by uh, the people who are too stupid to understand what he's saying. Not that I have an opinion on this. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> No, but he definitely gets the ear of people. So, and, and he, you know, when if he sees it and he thinks it ought to be changed or he thinks there's a problem with it, he'll definitely let people know about it. Well, well, and I think the other piece of it too is we need um, corporations like AMR and large corporations to start taking a stand on these issues. I mean, they, I mean, ultimately we can, we can revile them, whatever the case may be, but gosh, darn it. They, they transport a lot of patients in the United States every day and they should be the ones that are willing to take a step out and say, we're willing to do this for the greater good and willing to start making changes because we think it's important. Well, I think we need to stop having the corporations, the fire departments, the unions, and who are making money off of EMS being the ones to tell us how EMS should be run and have uh, the medical directors and the paramedics being the ones who are saying, this is what excellent patient care is. This is what we need to focus on. Um you know, it's about the patients. It's not about the corporations, not about the fire company, not about the hospitals. It's about doing what is necessary to transport the patient safely to the hospital. Not even necessarily making them better, just trying to avoid making them worse and doing what we can reasonably expect to do for the patient on the way. Yeah. Instead of looking at a higher level of paramedic, if we're going to have people demanding paramedics, maybe we need a lower level of paramedic to accommodate the low standards that we've been uh, bringing paramedic down to in so many places. You know, forget about endotracheal intubation and say, you know, you can handle an LMA. Uh, if you're not going to work at this, don't expect to be... Um, able to intubate and do other things that paramedics take for granted and the things they want to defend as if they're uh, it's their right to do these things even though they don't practice at them or do anything that you know would earn them any kind of right okay so I guess that brings up a point though that uh, and I and I sit and think that you know unless the company's willing to and, you know, you can say all of the good things about well, it's about the patient and stuff, but sometimes the patients don't know what they want or need. So it's up to us as the industry to set that standard and set the expectation. I didn't know I needed an iPod till I saw one. You know, I mean, kind of like that that kind of expectation for our industry and for patients to say, we think that you need a MacBook Pro, and here's why it's so awesome. We think that you need an ambulance service with paramedics. And the other side of that is we call everybody paramedics. I mean, it's just so easy. I mean, it's so Oh, I agree with that. It's so But then we can say everybody's a paramedic service, and there are different types, and it doesn't... So the public perception then is... Everybody's a paramedic. Now, then, now we, now we take, now we take the fight internally. We accept as paramedics, you know, what we consider to be the advanced life support provider and say, if you're going to do this, you need to maintain this skill to the point where you're able to intubate 95% of the time, 
successfully in 0% unrecognized esophageal tubes. Right. How many surfaces can do that? Right. Good point. And just say, if you can't do that, you're prohibited from intubation because obviously you don't have the quality control that is necessary to perform this skill. You can have your patients wait until they get to the emergency department. You explain it to your customers. But, it, but it's time that we stop defining ourselves by skills and we start defining ourselves by education. And there's there's the difference. I mean, I, if we call everybody paramedics and then we, we have the internal fight of what those levels of paramedic are and what... So now we've taken the public perception out of it. Everybody gets a paramedic. Good enough. Now, what the skills of that paramedic are can greatly vary by their level of education and what they've done and blah, 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 but everybody's a paramedic. So we, we, we immediately take out the customer's expectation. You need a paramedic no in your town. Oh, no, no, no. I know that. But what I'm saying, I'm not, and I'm not arguing with you. I'm just saying that these are great points because I think that we need to set up that, that standard and that what we view the, the patient really wants. I mean, I think that the education paradigm is there. <clears throat> that with the with the current education standards as they are, uh, you know, version one of the standards uh, really uh, worked on the scope of practice and the and the uh, domain of, of pre-hospital medicine as a way of trying to understand how can we separate out specific areas of of uh, training and education to support that. Uh, and I think it's there, and I think that we're that that we're seeing some changes beginning to happen. Um, even if it's the simple things like the textbooks are, are probably not going to be looking very much the same anymore. Uh, that you are going to have your your experts and your um, your authors really working to try to satisfy their interpretation of what those end standards are. And I think that that's um, sort of that is a step in the right direction. Uh, we still have a lot of regulation on upon us as if, if we're healthcare providers, as, as, as Chris is postulating. If we are that, then we have an unusual amount of government regulation that oversees us. Uh, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong or if it's necessary or not necessary. I think that systems are very different from places to places. As of right now, we don't have a very much of consistency, but <clears throat> we have those artificial controls in place that uh, on one hand, you could argue benefits because it, it helps to protect the public health. But on the other hand, it can be restrictive and keeps us from really exploring areas that we think really does do best for their, for the patient and for the community. Um, so we're, we're regulatory-wise not yet caught up with uh, what could be out there as being set forth by the scope of practice and the education standard. I don't see it as protecting the public health. I see it as something that has helped to get the education system we have where you make more working on the street than you do for teaching people how to become paramedics. Why do we settle for some system like that? If we want people who are excellent educators, we need to pay them more than what you make to pick up an extra shift. And we don't do that. So you get things like the three nitro rule that is perpetuated. And you ask somebody why they uh, have this rule. And they have no idea. They just know it's a rule. And that's the kind of response to regulatory oversight. It's like, oh, we've got to have a rule. Therefore, we do it this way. And 
you know, we don't think about why we do something. We need educators who understand what they're doing and can explain to the students to the point where the student understands. If they don't understand, they're just, you know, monkeys following a protocol and, you know, eventually we'll all be replaced by monkeys. How about a radical idea that we don't um, use one textbook to teach paramedics anymore? Kind of like arts, I mean, where we bring in different types of textbooks. We should be teaching paramedic. I mean, well, okay, here, God, here, I, here I go, here I go. With a smiley face on. <laughs> well, but I guess I, what I'm saying is that we should be, you know, we should be teaching paramedics about sociology, psychology, how to write. How to how yeah, to absolutely. do math? Uh, you know, I mean, it just seems so simple to me. But instead of having the all inclusive paramedic text oh, that's brought down on hot from on high, that this is the only you know this is the Bible of what you do, and you know it's all cookbook medicine, and you can go in there and okay, chest pain recipe, give give IV, give oxygen, give nitro, give morphine or fentanyl, blah blah blah, transport done. Oh gee, that's like making. You know, but instead of talking about the pathophysiology of why um, cardiac arrests happen and and why people get into chest pain, and I mean, I think we get that somewhat in school, but I think it could be expanded upon so much more. And then, Sam, it goes back to your theory of making community paramedics or making paramedics that work in the community in a subacute semi-chronic setting to where they they now have a vested interest in how that patient outcome is because once that patient comes home they know they're going to see them again for maybe one or two follow-up visits so that so that they can get them on the right path of uh, to be healthy and to be healthy and and happy at home those type of things so uh, i don't know we need to spend a lot more I'm just saying that, that Chris, you're just describing it's called it's called a degree. It's not, you know, oh, gee, I know, I, 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 but I, I get I get such I get such bad hate mail when I say that. Yeah, so we kind of, we, you know, everything that you just asked for is basically we've sort of figured that out. It's called a degree, and it's called having higher education. It's called really getting over the fact that yes, in fact, having more education is good. Does it change our pay rate? Not right now, but it would. Does it change the way that uh, we, the skills that we do in the field? Probably not, but it makes us better decision makers. It gives us a better sense of what happens in the world around us and, and the patient that's in front of us. And that's what people in our industry don't get. They, you know, the, the, the folks who are square in this corner of more education is not good for the profession is, uh, you know, what they, they don't know what they don't know. They are, you know, there's a blissful ignorance that's involved with that type of a statement and it will continue to hold us down. Uh, one of the many anchors that holds us from moving forward. Well, going back to what Tim said too, uh, and I hear what you're saying, Chris, about, you know, using different references, but maybe it isn't about the book. It's about the person doing the teaching and do they know more than what's in the book? Do they know more than those rote skills that they were taught? Or do they have a level of knowledge they can impart? Do they really understand the pathophysiology behind an MI? And if somebody asks the question, they know how to answer it, which segues into what Art was saying. It's a matter of higher education. And frankly, I also think, and, and one thing we haven't touched on, uh, what is a paramedic? Is it about their skills? Is it about their education? What about their attitude? 
and, and, you know, doing QI, I wrestle with a lot of issues with people that are just in the field too darn long because I don't know what else to do. You have to want this. You have to want to be the best you can. You have to want to be your skills up, keep your skills up. You have to want to care about the patient. You have to want to care about your own education. That factors into it as well. Oh, I don't care. Whatever you want to do. Oh, oh my <laughs> attitude. Sorry. <laughs> yes, you do. Or you wouldn't be doing what you're doing. Uh, well, Get true. back on that. You know, you're talking about, is it going to make a difference? Are other people going to run with that? Well, if you don't start it, if you don't get out there and you say, yeah, there's no data, well, you need to create that data. You need to do it in order to get data. And I appreciate the fact you're doing it because if nobody did it, if everybody was afraid to do it because it was new and different and, and wasn't proven, then it would never get done. How do we spend so little time on pharmacology in paramedic school when that is the easiest way for us to kill our patients? Good point. Well, and not only the pharmacology of what we give, but the pharmacology of what they're on. I mean, talk about uh, talk about an area that is ripe for uh, us to kill a patient. That's exactly one of them, is that we don't spend enough time having our providers understand their home meds and what, what the implications of those are. And they don't need to understand every one of them, but, you know, understanding the classes of them and, you know, every one of our paramedics carries a, a pharmacopoeia in their pocket and they, they have an understanding of, you know, the, you know, of, of classifications of medications and things like that, because it's important that they have an understanding that if they give a patient something, it can cause something else worse later. So, don't, uh, you know, obviously treat what you have, but take into consideration what you're doing to their system when you when you give a certain drug. But how much time do we spend on actually understanding it? People learn that you don't give nitro when patients on Viagra, but uh, it's not black and white like that. They're similar drugs, so there is a synergistic effect when you give them to uh, the same patient, but... There's no reason to say that you cannot give nitro to this patient. Um, it's an oversimplification of it in order to not have to understand it. And we've got to stop simplifying things to avoid having to understand it and get people to understand. Art, you tell me, what do you, um, what, how, what about you teaching paramedics? You, you're on the, you're in the, kind of front lines of teaching. What do you feel about teaching pharmacology or all these topics in general? It definitely goes back. So, I mean, I agree at the essence of what you're all um, putting out there. And I agree the, you know, the, uh, in the program that we're currently teaching here, the, uh, the students have to have certain prereqs in place uh, before they can take the paramedic program. So they, they have their full semester of anatomy, full semester of physiology, um, and, uh, you know, basic arrhythmia recognition and a variety of other things they have to have before they actually start the paramedic program. Um, that allows us to kind of work on increasing the number of hours they have for pharmacology. Uh, we, it's, it's coincidental, but we just finished the um, prescription medication component, uh, and, you know, all we spent was eight hours on it, um, but... It was still, you know, we barely touched on the subject, and students walk away with an understanding that we're a pharmacopoeia world here, uh, and that the stuff that we deliver uh, has uh, easily the ability to interact with a variety of different prescription medications that are out there. Uh, it, it's things like that 
And I think it's information like that, the, you know, the paramedics who have to drink from a fire hose during their training, um, that they have to, you know, you hope that they get to hear some of these things and try to incorporate it within their practice uh, to make, you know, safe, conservative medical clinical decisions uh, when they're actually managing their patients. And that's hard. I think that's very, I think it's very difficult to do because we're often, um, you know, again, sort of self-fulfilling prophecies here. We expect that we can churn paramedics out in very short periods of time and then expect them to operate at a competency level. Um, and there's really very few other, um, you know, health occupations out there that have this model. Most occupations have enough information that allows people to go work with an FTO equivalent or someone to that effect um, to really uh, do the journeyman approach of, of, uh, of handling their own patients. Uh, and we don't have that. And so I think that in some ways we, again, shoot ourselves in the foot with these, with these expectations that, hey, we can, we can pretty much safely put an EMT out there uh, in 120 hours. Ergo, we must be able to put a paramedic out there in X number of hours uh, at, at the same level of safety. Do we safely put EMTs out there in that amount of time, or do we just ignore the things that aren't up to uh, the standards we would like? And again, sort of, you know, what drives that argument? I've heard the argument that, well, it's really hard for EMTs to kill patients because they really don't do anything invasive, nor do they manage things that are, that are, uh, you know, significant. And most uh, of what kills people is BLS. Right. That's exactly right. I beg to differ completely on that, um, where uh, they don't, where, again, this is where we're not understanding what the value of pre-hospital care is. Where is it that we make at least in the current today's world, where do EMS providers make a difference? And I agree. I think it's the recognition that there's something seriously wrong and the, re- and the ability to be able to manage those things quickly and effectively using uh, relatively non-invasive methods to make that happen. Um, and I think that's where we currently are, given the evidence. Um, longer term, I do think that there's probably great value for out-of-hospital care providers like community paramedics and other types of uh, chronic care or subacute care that um, it may be less expensive to deliver through a different model. And we, you know, fit within whatever the future of healthcare reform is in the United States, and we fit better in that paradigm. Um, right now, I think that we, there is very little discussion on that. Well, and there, there is a change in curriculum, too. I teach BLS, and uh, the number of hours required has gone up astronomically. Uh, some systems are teaching, like, 200 hours now just on the BLS level. So, uh, mm-hmm. but you know, and I agree that it's good for them to have that knowledge, but how does that translate into the field given that, you know, BLS isn't doing anything really invasive? But I agree with you, too, Tim, that, you know, if you don't do BLS right, it can have a, a big impact. But... That will also, uh, you know, the new new paramedic curriculum is also out there for review in our state right now, too. So I imagine the level of knowledge there and the level of uh, expectation and understanding of pathophysiology. I mean, they've added, just to the BLS curriculum, they've added endocrinology and toxicology and, and, and things that they didn't get into before. So 
you know, at least at least the level of education and the level of comprehension is going up. And like like Art said, um, having a lot of prerequisites. So in our own little way, we are kind of increasing the level of education provided to them. But how is that going to change in the field is the question. Most important skill we've got, BLS or ALS, is assessment. And we focus on every other skill rather than the assessment. And that's something we need to change. Good point. But then you have to understand what it is you're assessing, too. Great point. Yes. Well, you know what's funny is back in the olden days of, of EMT training, olden days being, you know, 20-some years ago week. for me. <laughs> but, uh, I went through EMT school like 23 years ago, something like that. Oh, um, okay. I know you have me beat, Sam. Shut up. But <laughs> we had to learn a lot of that stuff. We had to learn. So I'm the youngin in the crouch? Yeah, you might be. You might be. Uh so, but back then you had I to was learn only a lot. Twenty years ago, I was only twenty. See, you are the youngest. Yeah, you're, still- <laughs> you're the young Sasquatch man. Uh, but for for me, you know, that's that was part of the that was part of that experience, learning all of those things. So, what was what was once old is now new again. You know, we're teaching EMS provider EMTs at the most basic level. What what um, you know. Gee, anatomy and physiology is that's kind of important. Um, whereas it, oh, my arm hurts, fix it. Yeah, kind of education that we've been giving them for so many years. Uh, in, um, I think it was in, it was in ninety uh, six or ninety seven. I wrote an article um, for our state website that said the dumbing down of EMS and when they proposed the new EMT standards and and how we were really going away from primary secondary assessment really yeah, I could care less about that that tells you how old I am uh, versus a focus to um, general so I don't know what they call it I, I see I, I'm so old I don't even know what it is general, but oh, no, it's it's back to that now though exactly but that's what I'm saying is it, it's good <laughs> so I'm like oh it's it's kind of funny how we we keep recuperating these and redredging through all these old systems going you know it wasn't so bad back then we need to up the standards on this and you know probably uh, anyway whatever if we had a crystal ball probably 10 years from now we'll be talking about how they've dumbed it down again so anyway uh well we are out of time by the way so uh any last comments on this because i know tim always has one oh me <laughs> yeah uh, we spend more time trying to get the people to fit patients to a protocol rather than getting them to understand and constantly reassess just because you assess them at one point does not mean that you know what's going on with them now. You need to continually reassess how do you know to continue a treatment or to stop a treatment if you're not reassessing. Good point. So, Tim Noonan, where can people find you since you're talking? Uh, roguemedic.com, um, paramedicine101.com, researchems.com, assuming we get that started again, <laughs> and here and there. All right on. Very cool. Well, thank you, sir. Miss Sam Bradley, where can people find you? Well, my last thought, Chris, is that EMS Garage will certainly uh, solve all the problems of the EMS world eventually. Yeah, right. Uh, okay, so anyway. People, same people. <laughs> it's all away from podcasting from a bar. 
<laughs> oh man, now you're now you're talking, man. Now you're talking. See, that was the original cons. Anyway, we'll talk about that someday. Uh, the original concept of having a beer machine in uh, the firehouse. Yeah, exactly. The ambulance company. Yeah, it's oh, hard to do this right. in the morning because you can't. I mean, you could have a bloody mary, but ugh, who wants to have a bloody mary this early? Ooh. Uh, not really. Yeah, you'd rather uh, a boilermaker. Uh, Sam Bradley eleven <laughs> at uh, Twitter. Let's get off the subject. I'm diverting here. Um, <laughs> Sam Bradley on Facebook. Uh, my blog, which I'm trying to reinvigorate, is now at Disaster Sam. There's a whole new thing starting there. I'll tell you about later. At FirstRespondersNetwork.tv, and you will see me in and around FirstRespondersNetwork.tv. Very cool. Well, thank you. And finally, Mr. Art. See ya. Can you tell us where people can find you, get a hold of you, or do you blog too? I don't even know. You know, I have, um, I had done some blogging, but it actually wasn't an EMS. Uh, it was in, uh, in nonprofit association management, but, um, it just taught me that, uh, I think that I'm just not a blogger. <laughs> um, so, um, so I have it, but thank you. Uh, and neither, and I don't tweet very often either. So probably the best place that people can, uh, uh, can find me. They can find me on Facebook under Artsia, and um, you know if there's any comments, email address is my uh, acia at santarosa.edu is a good address for that. Um, and I, you know, again, just sort of last thoughts. The you know we we try to engage the scope of practice and the education standard in a way that uh, it, it stops the tail from wagging the dog. Tail being the education side and the dog being the practice. But uh, again, I think that we're, we're, we are going to slide back in that direction if, the, if our industry does not uh, really grab the bull by the horns and really have a very significant discussion and action to make some fundamental changes. So uh, I will, until then, we're going to continue to have these issues over and over again. It's, it's just going to be the norm. Right on. Well, and you you have hit the nail on the head for sure at the last part because I think that that's truly the way we'll be heading. So thank you all for joining me this time on this episode of the EMS Garage. Join us next week when we talk more about issues that concern you in EMS. Oh, and I'm Geeky Medic, and you can find me everywhere if you want. So uh, thanks, and have a great evening, night, weekend, or shift, whatever you're doing today. Mm-hmm.